The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for that French toast. I don't know what those guys did to that, but it was amazing. Uh, We ask God that you would come and be our teacher today. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill us with insight and wisdom and illumination. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you uh, for your sacrifice of your Son uh, on our behalf. We thank you that we live and move and have our being in that sacrifice, that we are in Christ. And so, God, we come to you in Christ, in the one who is, uh, is entering Jerusalem today and disrupting the money changers. Uh, we come to him in his name, in his uh, sacrifice, in his blood, and trusting that we are coming in his salvation and in your good graces because uh, of him. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Good morning to all of you. So nice to see you today on this. uh, Just what a beautiful morning. What a beautiful morning. Well, today we're finally going to make it to Jerusalem. Finally going to make it to Jerusalem. I know I know you'd like to take a few more weeks. Um, We we have we have been um, 15 months, 14 months. 13 months, something like that, in, um, in Matthew, and, uh, and you know, a little, a little few, just a few breaks, but we, um, we've been aiming for this. This is what we've been aiming for. This is what Jesus has been aiming for, uh, coming through uh, all of Matthew. He's been aiming for, for this week. Three years of discipleship it took for the disciples to be convinced that He is the Messiah. Three years of seeing the miracles, of hearing the teaching of seeing the way that he treats the outcast. Three years of seeing the way that he treats the self-righteous. Finally figuring out that he's the Messiah and just beginning to understand what that means, that he is the Messiah. All right, just beginning. Today we get Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, Matthew chapter 21. Uh, which means that what we're, where we're entering, not just into Jerusalem, we're entering into Holy Week in Matthew, right? We're entering into the Holy Week portion of Matthew's Gospel. I want you to consider something. We've had 20 chapters of Matthew so far on the first 33 years of Jesus' life. And now we get eight chapters on the last week of His life. A third, almost a third of Matthew's entire gospel is devoted to this last week of Jesus' life. And the other gospels have a similar emphasis, uh, giving the last week far more scriptural real estate than any other period of Jesus' life. In fact, John gives fully one half of his gospel to uh, to the last week of Jesus' life. In this last week, we get a lot of teaching, a lot of teaching from Jesus, especially teaching that confronts the Pharisees, and uh, especially uh, teaching in the form of parables of judgment. Not, not exclusively, but we'll get a lot of parables in these last, uh, these last few chapters. So this part, this is part 10 of our study of Matthew, called Jesus' Last Week, 
And this is, we're going to cover chapters 21 through 25. Then we'll do the crucifixion, 26 and 27. Uh, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, uh, the Passion and the Crucifixion. And then chapter 28 covers, of course, the Resurrection and the Great Commission. And then we'll be done. Um, and, you know, by 2024. So, um, actually, I expect, I ex- unless we take a break for Advent, which we, we might, I, I expect to finish by Lent. But today we get the triumphal entry. It's a well-known, well-loved story, right? The triumphal entry. A lot of times, if you've been, for most Episcopal churches, we get uh, on Palm Sunday sort of liturgical whiplash because we start with the palm fronds and weeks of like, who's going to make the palm crosses and where are we going to get the, uh, the palm branches? And then we finally get it all done and then we come in and everybody's wearing their red and everybody's Hosanna. And then we get a 15-minute reading of, the, of you know, seven chapters of, of the gospel, or so there's really just two chapters of the gospel for the Passion. Sometimes we used to do that with um, different parts being read. And, um, and the reason that we... Uh, and so anyway, you go through this, this service, and, we, uh, and you feel like, wow, it starts with, with celebration, but ends with uh, sorrow. It starts with, uh, with Hosanna, and it ends with... Um, just this this weight. You, know, you start with the crowd that that is praising Jesus, and you end with this the crowd that is calling for his crucifixion. And um, and so we actually have have not done the passion narrative in in uh, in uh, Palm on Palm Sunday for the last couple of years, and the reason for that. Uh, is because you you do a really pretty good job of coming on Good Friday. They they instituted that um, in not just the Episcopal Church. I think it started in the Catholic Church, but because people didn't really come to Good Friday, and my gosh, you got it. You can't just go from Palm Sunday to Easter. You got to get the crucifixion. So they would just have it when people were there. Y'all do a pretty good job. And so we want to kind of the last couple few years anyway. We followed the narrative uh, through the week, and and people seem to like that. I'm happy to listen to your stance on that. But, um, but I, I want to just note, too, that I mean, a lot of times I have preached on, when I preach on that Passion Sunday, the Palm Sunday with the, with the Passion narrative, we preach that, you know, the crowd was fickle. You know, the crowd was praising Him on, on Sunday and then calling for His crucifixion on Thursday and Friday morning. And um, it was almost certainly not the same crowd. No, I, did, I, I didn't do that disingenuously, and lots of people do that, but I've learned that it was almost certainly not the same crowd. I'll, I'll, I'll explain that uh, as we get further uh, in there, um, and, but I've certainly preached it that way. The entourage was coming down the Mount, Mount of Olives. They were Galilean, and the crowd in the courtyard on Friday morning, they were from Jerusalem. So, uh, there's, and there's a great cultural distinction. We'll see that, and we'll see that played out. So I, I, I drew this map here. So we've got, this is like a cutout of, of Jerusalem over here. So we've got um, the larger Israel. We've got the, the Jordan River coming down and the Dead Sea. Jesus came down the, uh, on the east side of the Jordan River and crossed over and came to Jericho. And that's where we saw coming out last week. Down a little bit sort of east-southeast towards Jerusalem. This is the... Um, the Good Samaritan Walk, the Valley of the Shadow of Death, is 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 an amazing uh, area, very stark. 
Um, but about probably a six to eight hour walk, mostly uphill, 800 feet below sea level, 2,500 feet above sea level. Uh, so a good, about, a good amount of climbing. When you get to Jerusalem, you would come to the Mount of Olives that says, I suppose to say Mount of O, and I, somebody must have talked to me because I didn't write olives. Um, but the, uh, and, and so actually, um, uh, Bethphage, the little village of Bethphage is on this side of the Mount of Olives, sort of down there. And Bethany is also kind of over, over here. This is the Jerusalem Wall. This is the Temple. This is the Kidron Valley with the little creek running through. Kidron Valley is just... Simply, I mean, it's not really what we would think of a valley, like a dramatic mountainscape. It's just sort of, there's a hill over here called a mountain, but it's really just, a, it's pretty steep, but it's a big hill. And another hill, Mount Zion and Mount uh, Moriah. And, um, and then this area between is the Kidron Valley. So, so actually, like, um, Jesus' last night, I'm getting out, out of school, but Jesus' last night, he prayed on the Mount of Olives, came up here to the um, Last Supper, walked back here, down here to Gethsemane, got taken back up. Like, it's just, you know, it's, uh, it's really not far. It's really not far. All right, well, I've gotten ahead of myself there. But this, this is Bethphage right here where they come in, and he says, go get a donkey. But we're going to talk, talk about that. That's kind of, that's just, I wanted to show you the geography of what, we, what we're doing. Uh, the Mount of Olives is it's Mount of Olives, Kidron Valley, Jer- Jerusalem Temple Mountain. All right, triumphal entry. Now, I'll read it from here. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your, kingdom, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed, that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So he, uh, he's coming in, uh, and he goes, tells, tells him to go get the donkey, approaching Bethphage. And this, this is not, I mean, just, again, it's, just, it's not too far. I mean, it would have been maybe a couple of miles. He's walked 90 miles already, right? He's already walked a long way. He's not saying, gosh, my feet are tired. Go get me something to ride on. He is setting up a dramatic, prophetic fulfillment so, so that he can, everybody can see what he's claiming to be, who he's claiming to be. He, is, um, he has been constantly telling people all throughout the Gospels, when they say, you are the Christ, he says, yeah, but don't tell anybody. Okay, now there's no more messianic secret. 
It's out, the cat's out of the bag on purpose. He's send, sending the cat through the streets. He, is, he, is, uh, he wants everybody to know. Without him saying, I'm the Messiah, he is taking several dramatic acts to assert that he is the fulfillment of the prophecies uh, about the Messiah coming. There are several prophecies in this passage that are three, actually, that are specifically mentioned. But there's actually several more as I was learnt, studying and learning about this in more detail. There's several other prophecies that are hinted at along the way that we'll see. So he's approaching from the east, up from Jericho, uh, and it seems that there he has arranged, prearranged the donkeys. Only Matthew has a donkey and its colt. Everybody else, all the other three Gospels just have uh, one donkey. Why is Matthew doing this? Remember, there were two blind men, there were two uh, demoniacs, and, um, but it seems, that, it seems that Matthew is very particular because the, the, um, he didn't just make up a donkey, um, it, but it seems that Zechariah says he's coming in on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, so he's, uh, there's a dis- distinction there, he's, so he's, making, he's just letting us know that uh, this is the fulfillment. And it says, when Jesus says, tell him the Lord needs it, uh, Matthew doesn't ever have Jesus referring to himself as, uh, as Kyrie, the Lord. And, uh, and so it, it would have meant to them, it would have meant God needs it. God needs the donkey. Now you and I can draw uh, from that that Jesus is the one asking for the donkey, so Jesus is saying that he's God. But it... Um, but it just, you know, that could have been this sort of code or password that he had prearranged. Tell him the Lord needs it, and that's the uh, that's the that's the idea, you know, that um, that that okay, all right, well, it, uh, we've we prearranged it. But the implication is clear that he is the Lord, especially when it's paired with the drama to come. And it says this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. The prophet there he's talking about is Zechariah. Uh, it is very rare that he would uh, actually name one of the minor prophets. Often, if he quotes Isaiah or Jeremiah, he names them, but Zechariah is what we call the minor prophets. Um, and they are, um, and, and it's rare that he would, he would name it. He does not name Zechariah. It just says, spoken by the prophet, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So, let me go back, let me read Zechariah, let me go back to Zechariah. Zechariah 9 is talking about judgment upon Israel, the enemies of Israel. Those who would uh, destroy the work of God, who would keep his, uh, God's people from uh, God's work. And then it, tur- it turns halfway through, and there's this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. So he's, um, there's this, he's not coming on a war horse. And in fact, let me read to you what uh, a scholar uh, named uh, Richard France has said. He says, there is a subtle tension within Zechariah's description of this messianic king. He is victorious. Yet he is meek, and his triumph was received rather than won. 
He rides on a donkey rather than a war horse, and His kingdom will be one of peace rather than of coercion. When Jesus, this is really important, when Jesus chose this oracle to enact as He approached the city, He was thus claiming to be the Messiah, but not the sort of Messiah that popular patriotism might have hoped for. What does that mean? What was the sort of Messiah that they were hoping for? A warrior king. A warrior king. To to, to what? Throw off the Romans. That's right. That's right. And here He comes. The enemies of God... The enemies who are, uh, who are disrupting the work of God are not the Romans, but actually the religious Jews. It would have been completely upside down. Not that he was against them or their people, but he was against this sort of uh, power politics, it's against self-righteousness, against needing uh, uh, to earn it uh, rather than Receive it. So, uh, the need for the messianic secret has come to an end. There's no subtlety, there's no hiddenness, there's no guessing, there's no suspense, right? Jesus is being deliberately dramatic and clear to anyone who's watching as he enters the city. Anyone who's aware of the scriptures would have seen it. The disciples go and get the donkey, they use the password. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Some of them cut branches. We call it Palm Sunday. John says they cut palm trees, but he's the only one. And I have to tell you, I asked our guide when we were there, where are all the palm trees? (laughs) There's not any. There's just a bunch of olive trees up there. Maybe some oak trees. But, uh, but no, uh, no, no palm trees. Um, I, I would guess that, I mean, because, you know, like all the time when, when, um, when someone is really giving someone a, gift, a, a, a nice gift in like the Old Testament, they bring them a change of clothes. You know, like the clothes, it was, it was expensive. I mean, you think about the textile industry and what it would have been. They were bringing a change of clothes. For them to take their clothes and lay them on the road, so that a donkey could walk all over them, and who knows what else, that that was, in fact, a, an incredible act of um, submission uh, as they re- laid out this royal carpet. And those who cut branches just didn't have any clothes to offer. Like that's the poorest of the poor, just taking what they could get and cutting off the, the branches and laying that before. But they're laying out this... this um, this royal sort of royal carpet. It's really not the entry that is so important. It's the approach. It's really the triumphal approach. And they're approaching Jerusalem. They're coming down the very steep path. Where's Emily? Emily, you remember walking down that steep path? We walked it together. It's, uh, it was very very steep. Several of us very steep down the down that um, uh, Palm Sunday walk. And then uh, you come down. You come. We walk right past the Garden of Gethsemane. And then uh, he would have gone right up uh, into the city uh, through the gates. And, it's, um, uh, and there's this incredible distinction. It's really as he enters, he says, as he enters uh, Jerusalem, the whole, the whole city is stirred up. Who is this? Who is this? And the crowds who are with them, that's the Galileans. So the Jerusalem Jews say, who is this? And the Galilean Jews say, this is Jesus. The prophet Jesus from... Uh, Galilee. Um, 
there you see that distinction, and uh, and so the the crowds in the in Jerusalem are offended or or disturbed or stirred up, and it says, and the it's the ones the one shouting Hosanna uh, are the Galileans. It's, it's not that they turned uh, during the week. Um, or that the Jerusalem Jews just got caught up in the moment and sang Hosanna. They, they want to know uh, who, who it is. And, but, so they say, this is the prophet. And of course, their, their description is short, right? He is a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. He's more than a prophet. But they, they, the people in Jerusalem are asking the most important question, right? And that's the, that's the question for all of us at all times. Who is this? Who is this is coming in claiming to be the king? Who is this coming in humble and mounted on a donkey? But it's, it's, it's a, there's almost a, if it's not true, there's a note of irony because it wouldn't be real humble to make such a claim if it wasn't true, right? It's, the, it's not just for a question for coming to faith, but actually for living faith. I mean, when you think you're confronted with a, a difficult question, uh, a moral uh, conundrum or a, a temptation. Uh, you want to just uh, snap at your spouse. I mean, I would never do that. But I, um, the, um, the question is, who is Jesus in that moment for you? Is he, is he a rabble rouser? Is he a, a freedom fighter that says, yeah, fight for, fight for your thing? Or is he humble and meek and mounted on? Anyway. It's uh, really important. We'll get to that in just a minute. So he's often re- Jesus is often referred to by theologians as prophet, priest, and king. I don't know if you've heard that description. Prophet, priest, and king. Isn't it interesting? Here he's called the prophet. Those from Jerusalem. He rides in as a king. And where does he go? Right to the temple. So he's, he's that's where the priests are. Right? So right, right in this little narrative, we see Jesus functioning prophet, priest, and king. Now, you, if you really want to sort of fulfilling or filling out of all those titles, read the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. But, um, and, and, and he's not just the priest, though, is he? He's actually the, the sacrificial offering as well. He's both priest and sacrifice. So who is this? He, behold, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Prophet, priest, King. And I just was thinking about, as I was reading this and thinking about this class, I was just thinking about the, the mindset of the disciples. Jesus three times has said to the disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to get killed. I'm going to be handed over to uh, the Pharisees and then to the Romans and I'm going to be crucified. And you imagine the disciples walking down that Mount of Olives, all Hosanna, and palm branches waving, everybody's coming up into crossing that Kidron Valley and going up. Everybody's saying, I don't know what he was worried about. This is going great. We are going to get our place in the cabinet. We are going to be his vice president and, and prime minister. This is fantastic. It's, I don't know what he was uh, upset about. And they would have thought in that moment, this is a miracle. God is working. Well, God was working. And it was a miracle, but not like they thought. And life works like that a lot, doesn't it? You think it's going one way, and it's not, and it doesn't mean God's not working. So, the key takeaway, this, I've, I've used this in certain words, so it's not new. 
But this is something that I think is just really wonderful devotionally. That Jesus the Messiah, he, he's, he's the king, he's riding into Jerusalem, he's riding through the stone walls into the city whose purpose it was uh, was to recognize the Messiah. That was, that was, Jerusalem was home base. That was the temple city, the city of God, the city of the temple. That's where they should have recognized the Messiah. And inside was, a, a, instead of being ready to recognize the Messiah, it was a religious mess, religious self-righteousness, full of greed. Uh, it was a mob of emotion. And they could not recognize Him, and they killed Him. And our hearts are so much like Jerusalem. Often, uh, this stone exterior, the purpose of which is to recognize the Messiah, and yet it's a, a mob of emotion, it's a religious mess, and sometimes we don't recognize the Messiah. Will we let Him bring order, or will we send Him outside the gates to die? I just think that our... Uh, the key, when I read this, that's the devotional thought I tend to have. Our hearts are like Jerusalem. My heart is like Jerusalem. Will I let Him bring order? Will I recognize Him as Messiah? Or will I do what I want and stick to my own way? Do you have any reflection or thought or comment on the triumphal entry? Richard. Yes, I, I have a couple of questions that I had. I always thought that uh, I did not realize if, in fact, the uh, colt and the donkey were prearranged. I always thought that was a miraculous thing that Jesus made and sent his disciples to. I, I'm op- certainly open to it being miraculous. It just seems, I mean, most most scholars would say, and it kind of makes sense to me that it would be prearranged. It doesn't say it's prearranged. It doesn't say it's miraculous. It just says that. So it's, it, I would say it seems prearranged. I don't mean to take away from the miraculous, and I'm very happy for you to believe it was. I don't, it doesn't, doesn't matter to me one way or the other. It's it both, both wonderful. Yeah. And, and one thing, and you, it might just have been the way you said it. I, you said that they, they, they could not recognize him. They, they did not want to recognize him because they set out to kill him from the very beginning. So it wasn't that they, that, that crowd, they, they did not want to recognize him because he was a threat to all that they were. Yes, I mean those as synonymous. Yes. It's not that they didn't have the information. They, could, they still couldn't see it. It's that they would, could not, would not believe it. That's, that's correct. That's what I mean to say. Yes, ma'am. Um, let me say out of word there. Okay, it was Jesus knew that he was going to die. Yes. On the cross. What if they had all accepted him and he's the Messiah, and you know, and he doesn't die on the cross for our sins? Then we would not have. In other words, I'm just so humbled that he did die for my sins. If he had lived and been the Messiah and all, you know, we'd forget about that, I think, and not really realize about the horrible death he had on that cross. That's right. Um, 
If you couldn't hear Sissy, she said, that what, what if they had recognized him and everybody lived happily ever after with Jesus sitting on the king, uh, on the throne? Like, I don't know what this, I don't even know, I don't know, wouldn't know it, what to make of that. I mean, I would say that that is, uh, that was not how it had to be. No, it wasn't. Uh, and, and I don't think we would have felt the yeah. same way about Jesus. He would have been like King David or King Arthur, really. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's a good point. We'll talk, we'll, we'll talk about, like, when we get to chapter 26 and 27, where Jesus doesn't open his mouth to, to his kangaroo court. Because if he had opened his mouth and explained, they couldn't have crucified him. You know? I mean, it just, it had to go this way. Yeah. All right, so he goes and cleanses the temple, uh, is, is what we call it, the cleansing of the temple. He entered the temple... It's verse 12. And drove out all who sold and, brought and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. It's interesting, I think, that the disciples are actually not mentioned in these verses. Um, it makes Jesus stand out all the more. He's not leading some sort of popular... Uh, movement, um, this popular revolt, he is further establishing his own messianic authority. Uh, the next day they'll, they'll come and ask him, actually on, in Mark it's the same day, uh, but um, the, uh, the authorities come and say, by what authority are you doing these things? Because they see that this is, if, if he's just a regular guy, he's, he's stepping out of line. He's making... Uh, messianic claims. Now the temple here is not the place of sacrifice. So if I were to draw it up here, the, there were several buildings within buildings and, and, and the Holy of Holies would have been sort of right towards the middle and only the priests could go in there and then you have only the Jewish men and only then the just Jewish men and women and then this is where we are now is uh, right inside the temple. This is it's a huge, huge area called the, the Court of the Gentiles. It's probably an open-air courtyard uh, type thing, type place. And the reason there are uh, animals being sold here, uh, money, currencies being exchanged, is because people, uh, this Passover was one of three primary pilgrimage feasts throughout the year, and, um, and it was the biggest and most popular. Most people came uh, because of, um, came, if they couldn't come to all three, they would come to, pa- to uh, Passover. And so where the, the normal population of Jerusalem was probably at that time about 30,000 people, it was estimated to be 180,000 during, um, during uh, Passover, which is why Jesus is staying out here in Bethany and Bethphage, right? Because they're just camped out everywhere. They're just crawling with people. And you had to bring a, a sacrifice to the temple for Passover. And, you, you know, if you're, just, if you're coming from Galilee or who knows where else, you could, I guess, in theory, drive your own ox all the way up there or cage your own pigeons and have them flopping around for 80 miles or whatever while you're walking. Or you could just buy them when you get to town, right? That's what, you know, that's what we do when you need a, you got to go on a long trip and you got to buy a full thing of shampoo. You can't take that on the airplane, right? You got to just buy it when you get there. So uh, it's much more convenient. But if you want to buy something in the airport, that kind of convenience is going to cost you a premium, isn't it? And it's kind of like buying stuff at the airport. The closer you got into the temple, the more expensive the animals came. 
And once you got into the temple, they're going to be the most expensive. But it doesn't really, like I think you can look at it, people have tried to make the case that Jesus is really upset at the sort of um, greed and the profit mongering and that people are, are charging the exorbitant prices. There was something you know, sort of necessary and convenient about having the animals there. But it seems more that this is, again, um, fulfilling prophecy. Um, that he is uh, continuing his dramatic revelation of himself as the Messiah. And in fact, I think um, he's specifically, uh, Matthew is going out of his way to make the point when he specifically says he overturned the table of those selling pigeons rather than saying he drove out the bulls and the goats or whatever. Because the pigeons were for the poor people. If, they, if all they had to offer was you know, a, a penny, then they could buy a pigeon and that would, that would suffice. So Jesus, is, Jesus, who doesn't pick on poor people, is, is saying uh, what, he's, what is required is a, is a cleansing of the temple. So, Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, saying, My house should be called a house of prayer. My house, so he's claiming ownership. Over the, um, uh, over the temple. Who gets to do that? Only God. Zechariah, still saying, back to Zechariah, 14.21, looks to a day when there will be no traitors in the house of, his, house of the Lord. That is just for worship. Malachi, very end, of, very end of the Old Testament. The Lord will come suddenly to His temple and purify its worship and its offerings. And then we think about Ezekiel. And Ezekiel to me is one of the hardest books in the Bible to read. I probably read it the least. But the last eight chapters of Ezekiel is a whole vision of the temple. Ezekiel is taken around by the angel of the Lord to each part of the temple and it's explained what it is and what it's for. And it's very wild. And, um, but it's, it's just this vision of the temple is only for worship. It's only for worship. So, when Jesus comes in and flips over the tables, again, people say, well, yeah, the bulls and the goats were distractions, and he didn't want distractions in worship. I mean, he's flipping over tables. There's money going everywhere. Like that, there's, It was a distraction, and it was intended to be. He was supposed to. He was, he, was, he was trying to gain their attention because he actually is the object of worship. So it's, it's not just in the Holy of Holies where he goes makes this dramatic act. It's in the court for all people. The court of the Gentiles. Anybody could go there. He's drawing the attention of all people uh, to himself because he's the Messiah for all people. If our hearts are the place of prayer and worship, we want to constantly be ridding them of the distractions and the greedy practices. The distractions from our worship. We want to purify our focus on Jesus. That's what I would take away uh, here. All right, I got a few more minutes. Questions and thoughts about cleansing in the temple before we just go to this last par- last little paragraph. It's kind of a weird passage, and I mean, you just kind of there's a few times where Jesus seems out of character, and I would say this is one of them. We don't why why do this? This he's made, he's claiming his place as Messiah. He's provoking a crisis because he didn't get killed for loving people. He got killed, but for saying he was God. Roman currency couldn't be used in the temple. They didn't want to change the money to 
to what would be all could be used in the temple. That's correct. And and, and so uh, that what was happening is he was so angered because they were keeping his people from having access to the place where they would worship and and stationing them outside because they didn't have the right things. The, the, uh, all the animals had to be examined. It's pretty certain they had to be examined, and if their animal wasn't right, they had to sell them. They had to sell them one to the And so it, it, he was angry, so angry, because they were keeping his people from worship. Well, perhaps. I mean, I, I, I don't think that's incorrect, but I don't think... I mean, what I'm trying to say is that it wasn't just angry at the, at the corrupt practices... Uh, and the sort of keeping people from worship, but it act sort of angry at and on a prophetic level that the temple itself is not for the marketplace. Now, this isn't to to say, well, you know, churches shouldn't have bookstores or something like that, but to say that in the place of worship, that that I mean, the fulfilling the prophecies that say that, that the Lord is going to come suddenly and cleanse the temple for uh, so there's nothing it's for nothing but worship. And so I'm not saying he wasn't angry, and I've heard that before, and I don't mean to be disruptive to what we've understood, but I'm saying that at least from Matthew's perspective, it seems that what's more important to Matthew is the prophetic fulfillment that the Lord has come, the messianic authority that the Lord is coming to cleanse his temple. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, can, I agree with both sides of that. Yeah. Okay. All right. I learned something on this last paragraph. I mean, I learned something on a lot of it, but I um, saw something I had never seen before. Pretty neat, actually, I think. It says, The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And then leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So, this is, in fact, the only reference to healing or any miraculous act of Jesus in Jerusalem in all three synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, and of course sees things, it's not wrong, it just tells a different story, he actually goes to Jerusalem several times, he does several healings in Jerusalem. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which, which never tell of him coming to Jerusalem before the, his last week, uh, he only is a teacher, he only is a sort of agitator, um, uh, and, uh, and this is the only time we see him healing. Um, uh, and the children are crying out, Hosanna! further indicating that it wasn't, the, the problem with the animals wasn't the disruption. Because he loves it when the children are crying out in church. Don't you love it when the children cry out in church? Sometimes, sort of. Like maybe on one level, but not every level. Um, love it. Because somebody said if the, if, the, uh, if, the, if the babies ain't crying, the church is dying. And, um, and so that's, uh, that's, that's, that's a true statement. But the children are crying out, Hosanna. They're just in a sense, mimicking or mocking, not mocking, but mimicking what they've heard uh, as Jesus came in. Um, but their cries would have been loud and distracting. But Jesus loves it. Even if they were saying something that was orthodox, that was you know, theologically correct, it was, 
it, was, um, it would have been distracting. But he loves it. And he defends their right to be distracting. Um, praise to God was what the court was for, and they're praising God. Hosanna to the Son of David. Now, the Son of David is, of course, a messianic phrase, but it just says that he's descended from David. It's the same phrase as, as was shouted out coming into, coming into Jerusalem. Here's what I learned. I never, I never heard anybody say this. this one of the scholars I was reading. David, in 2 Samuel 5, David is taunted as he be, attempts to take Jerusalem for the first time. Now, I ran out of time. I actually didn't go back and read this story, but this is what the scholar says. That when he's taking Jerusalem for the first time, he is taunted, and, and his, the taunt is the blind and the lame will keep you out of Jerusalem. Like you're so weak, the, even the blind and the lame keep you out. And David responds, saying, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So he's, he repudiates the blind and the lame. He will overpower them. They will not be able to keep him uh, out, and they will not be able to come in uh, when he gets in. So Jesus is compared, not, he's not compared to David, he's contrasted with David. Because the blind and the lame come to him in the temple, and rather than casting them out, he heals them. And I, again, prophetic fulfillment, uh, the really, uh, I, I did, wouldn't know, I, wouldn't, I don't know 2 Samuel enough to, to see that. Again, the, the scholar brought that. The really, really careful, knowledgeable uh, reader of Scripture would, would see that. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And there's a really, something really wonderful uh, about that. Um, he is, as the hymn says, great David's greater son. And, in the, uh, and then he quotes the psalm because they're indignant. The, the Pharisees are indignant. Have you, do you hear what they're saying? They, they know. They see the wonderful things he's doing and they're indignant. Isn't that amazing? He says, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? So he's receiving their praise publicly and further assuming his own divinity. In the psalm, the words of the children vindicate God against his enemies. And so it's pretty remarkable and important. And so what, what, what would you say is the takeaway devotionally from, uh, from your own faith perspective uh, in your knowledge of Christ and your love for Christ? What is the takeaway from this, these 17 verses? What, what do you need as a Christian? from these verses. Gary. I think he did it all to invoke what was coming. Yes. Without him doing this, they may have just left him alone. He just came in and bought one of the doves and offered a sacrifice and went home. Nobody would have said anything, right? He's provoking a crisis. That's right. That's certainly Matthew's point. Yeah. I think. What else? Yeah, right. Excuse me, last couple of words. Um, it's quite a reminder. When you come to church on Sunday, how much of it is transactional, how much of it is relational, and how much of it is for worship, which is why we're there. So if you can't hear Ray, he said, we come to church on Sunday, how much is transactional, how much is relational? Uh, tell me how you tell me where you get that. And I, I'm yes, thank you, I agree. Where do you get that out of what we've seen? Uh-huh. And the temple 
It was intended as a place of worship, but there's a lot of other things and side things that go with it. Um, and so I think he clears out some of the things that are not essential to the function that should be occurring. He's clearing out the things that distract us from worship. That even in the house of the Lord, there are distractions from worship. It happens. It does. And it's on us, isn't it? Devotionally, anyway. To allow Jesus to come in and cleanse us on a daily basis. What else? Last one, Craig. Well, I just feel like it's, it's not just something that uh, going to the cross that uh, Jesus allowed to happen, but by through these scriptures, it actually proves that it's something that He chose to happen to him. He chose he it. He had to do things to make it happen. Yeah, he, that's right. He had to make, he had to do things to make it happen. He didn't just go in and go on Thursday, wait a second! <laughs> like, no. He's, he's, the time for the veil, the time of the veil to be lifted has come. That's what gets him in trouble. Alright, so last thing. When you read the scripture, when you read something like this, don't just learn the story. Ask how the story applies. It's really important. Ask, think to yourself. Give us some thought. Not just, I know that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, but what does that mean for me? And how does that apply to my walk with Him? All right. God bless you. Go to church. Next week we'll be, uh, we'll be, we'll get Holy Monday next week. Holy Monday. Bye, Katie.